This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Tiffany Caban, candidate for uh, Queens District Attorney. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of kick it off and perhaps give our listeners a little bit of background into what it is a district attorney does and why that job is so important. Yes, um, well I start off by just trying to frame how important a district attorney's race is. It is, in my opinion, literally um, the most important local elected official that you could vote for because when you talk about your your legislators, um, they write bills, introduce them, maybe they get passed, maybe they don't, um, but your district attorney literally makes policy and implements it on day one. Uh, and when we talk about what our district attorneys do, you can't separate our criminal justice system from housing, from health care, from education. They decide what cases get prosecuted, what cases don't. Um, you know, we are in a system where we over-criminalize and over-prosecute, for example, our black and brown and low-income uh, and immigrant and LGBTQIA plus communities, and we don't prosecute um, bad actors who are, are destabilizing entire communities. Why? Because Maybe they have a ton of money. Maybe they have the right political ties. We don't prosecute bad landlords who unlawfully evict. Uh, we don't the, prosecute the corporate employers. criminals. Exactly. The, the white collar. Exactly. Exactly. And there's really an opportunity for your district attorney also to be a, a place where, when you think about the job being public safety and not just punishment for the sake of punishing, but public safety, it makes all the sense in the world to be proactive and stabilize communities. Um, and there's a real opportunity to, to get those things done too. And your background is a little different than some of the other candidates in the race. You come from a public defending background. Can you talk about why that is important, number Mm -hmm. one, but how that has framed your perspective on what a DA should be? Absolutely. Uh, I think it is probably the most massive difference between me and anybody else running in the race. Uh, You know, when we... Criminal justice reform is this, as it should be, this huge national issue um, right now. The, the buzzwords are out there, the playbook is out there, everybody's sort of self-describing as a progressive yeah. um, prosecutor to the point where really it's lost a lot of its meaning and I, I like to talk more about decarceral prosecutors. But when we talk about these criminal justice reforms that are now being widely accepted across the country, uh, they're, they're literally the things that public defenders have always known and always fought for. They're mm. the things that we fought for on the front lines in court every day, up in Albany for decades. So prosec- you know, career prosecutors, career politicians um, who have essentially built, fed into our current system of mass incarceration um, are just playing catch up on a lot of these issues. And they're the things that, that we have come up trained on and knowing. So let's talk about decarcerating, kind of ending the era of mass incarceration here in Queens. What are some tangible policies that could be implemented under a, a DA Caban's administration? Yes, um, some tangible policies are 
decriminalizing uh, crimes born of poverty, mental health, substance use disorder, and recognizing that the best way to achieve public safety is to provide supportive services in gapping areas. Um, you know, so it's almost preventative in nature. Absolutely. And you see it around the country that this works better than having the police be the first responder in certain mm -hmm. situations, having our district attorneys um, you know, step in in some of these ways. Because really what our criminal justice system does once you enter it is that there's so many opportunities for it to further destabilize your life and ensure that you cycle right back into the system. Um, so, you know, going from a place of, of um, supporting first, but then there are a lot of practices in our Queens District Attorney's Office that are just wildly unjust. Um, you know, in Queens, the most diverse borough, the most diverse place in our entire country, RDA has taken a hard stance saying, I'm not gonna consider um, immigration consequences in any of my decision-making process. I'm gonna cooperate with ICE, uh, making already vulnerable communities more vulnerable hmm. because, you know, not only are people risking deportation or removal for low-level offenses that maybe other folks would think nothing bad would happen, right? You, yeah. you, uh, a petty theft from a store or a, a, a small amount of, of marijuana or another drug. But the um, undocumented com community is at risk of deportation. Yes, and not only that, but when there are those kinds of risks in place, then you can't go help when you're the survivor or victim of a crime because mm. you feel like if you go to the police, if you go to your court system or the district attorney's office, you run the risk of, of exposure to ICE. So now you can't even go get help from the people that are supposed to be there to help you. And we've seen um, throughout the boroughs, ICE has shown up at different courthouses. Mm -hmm. Is that something that the DA would have control over, whether to allow them onto there, the premises? You know, there are so many things that the DA can do to reduce exposure. After Donald Trump was elected, um, I literally started getting, in the middle of the night, phone calls and emails from my undocumented clients, terrified hmm. to come to their court dates. I represented a woman, she was um, in her 60s and she struggled with substance use and um, she got arrested for a small amount of, of drugs. And she had a prior record for like similar things and um, you know she was so afraid to come to court. She would cry and shake when I'd, I'd meet her there. We'd sit, you know, you have to, you sit a long time to, to um, see the judge and not really get much done on your case, but you know, when she'd have to go to the bathroom, she would just put her head down, grip, like vice grip my hand, and I'd have to walk her to the bathroom and back. And I couldn't tell her that she didn't have a reason to be scared. And what our district attorneys can do in situations like that is say, well, one, maybe it's appropriate not to prosecute in this case and just provide access to supportive services but also to excuse people from their court dates and not not ask for a warrant mm. um, to do things like what we call paper pleas so that you resolve cases without people having to show up to the courthouse if ice is it we know that there's an ice presence there um, and then also just being again preventative on the front end and saying hey before we go forward with charges or before we decide what charges um, to file here Let's have immigration attorneys available in that assessment to make sure that we are doing everything we can to protect folks. And those are things that, that don't happen and can very easily happen. Hmm. And when we think about some of the more troubling policies that have been commonplace, what comes to mind for me is cash bail. Um, and we've seen a number of reforms passed at the state level that will be going into effect in the next year or so. Mm -hmm. How do you see those changes in those laws yeah. affecting the future of what a New York City DA uh, would, would look um, like? You know, this ties almost back to how powerful your district attorney is and why it's so important mm -hmm. um, to vote uh, for your district attorney because 
while we accomplished some incredible things with our new criminal justice reform um, bills, the discovery law is incredible. Like, I, I mean, I saw it and I couldn't believe it. I was like, this yeah. will just change. We, I mean, we do trial by ambush, uh, literally getting you know evidence right before we start a trial. And now the new discovery laws allow uh, someone who's been accused of a crime to see the evidence that has been gathered against them. Yes. I think it's now within 15 days. Within 15 days. That's and right. before it was, it could have been up to a couple of years. Oh, yes. The time yes. of trial. And depending on the kind of case, I mean, I, there have been situations where um, we're trying a case and you're literally getting more of the evidence against the person, against, you know, the accused, as people are taking the stand, you'll get it 10, 15 minutes before somebody really? takes the stand in certain cases. So then how do you build a case to defend them when you don't know what's against <laughs> it's, them? It is incredibly unjust. But mm. again, I mean, you know, the, the gamesmanship that ends up getting incentivized. But, you know, going back to your question about um, bail, bail is an area where I don't think it went far enough. And what the district attorney can do is be a model for what best practices are because the law doesn't say that the the district attorney can't go beyond that, right? I mean, that's why even without the discovery laws in Brooklyn, they had open file. They have open file discovery, and they're handing stuff over. Um, same with cash bail. My commitment is that we will never ask for cash bail and ever, ever. And the reason in any instance, in any instance, and the reason is this: okay. um, because it sets up two systems of justice, right? Mm -hmm. If if you say that on nonviolent low-level offenses, we're going to presume everyone released, whether you are poor or wealthy, you get to fight your case from the outside. But if you are charged with a violent felony, uh, then, and you're poor, right, you're going to have cash bail set against you and you won't get out of jail. Uh, but if you're wealthy and you are accused of a violent offense, you will be able to buy your way out of jail and buy your constitutional rights to the presumption of innocence. Now, when you end cash bail entirely, you do create a system of what we call release or remand, meaning that you either release or you're asking for somebody to be held in pre-trial um, without any bail. Um, so you have to be careful about what that looks like and how you do it. So my commitment is to say that we will release uh, as many people as we can um, to the extent that we can with the least restrictive means that ensures that they come back to court. So some people you'll just be able to release and they'll come back to court. Some people you'll say maybe we need some supervision, uh, maybe they need access to services or support, maybe they need reminders. What we're finding with the, the bail funds in our city is that when people have access to a cell phone or even just simple things like a text message or email alert, 90 over 97% of the time people come back to court. People do, and that's, you know, providing direct client services, you know that people do want to come back to court. They want good outcomes in their cases. They right. want the cases to resolve so that they can stay with their families and their and communities. move on with their lives. Exactly. Yeah. And then in the most serious of cases, we will have a situation where we will be, um, you know, it's a decision that you don't take lightly. Uh, and But when it happens, you will say, well, I understand that I'm asking for remand, right? That I'm taking, that I am asking that this person's liberty be taken away pretrial before they're proven guilty of anything. And so in those instances, it is incumbent on the DA to say, we're gonna hand over all the evidence right away. We're gonna have a mechanism in place that reevaluates a bail status um, every so often so that we're not keeping people incarcerated um, unnecessarily knowing that they will come back to court. But that is literally the, the, the the exception to the rule. So I'm, I'm gonna put my skeptic hat on for a little bit. Sure. And I wanna dig a little deeper into mm -hmm. this. Um, in the instance that someone has been accused of a violent crime, mm -hmm. isn't there reason 
um, hypothetically speaking, to keep that person out of the community where they could be a danger to themselves or to someone right. else? So, I mean, first off, they're accused of a violent crime, right? They're Correct. Not, they're they're not proven innocent guilty, until right? proven guilty. That's but, right. You know, in our the way that our statutes are set up is that you are not allowed to consider dangerousness um, when you're making a bail determination. A judge cannot do it. It is uh, they are allowed to consider the um, the person's ties to the community. Um, the flight risk that they pose, uh, and the strength of the case. And you have to be careful for making these hard lines with certain offenses because if you say violent violent felonies, right? Um, I represented a client who was charged with a violent felony, a burglary in the second degree. What he was accused of doing was going into the lobby of an apartment building and stealing some Amazon packages. That's a violent felony in New York City. That's a, that you know. Right, so well, when you, you you have to look at it sure. on a on a case by case basis. Um, and you know, uh, again, if somebody is is uh, charged with murder and we have you know strong evidence against them, we are going to ask for remand. Um, so it's not a situation where uh, the district attorney's office is uh, you know willfully. Uh, creating a situation where folks are are unsafe and we're seeing that ending cash bail in some places um it works i mean they did, did a long time ago in, in washington dc for example hmm. hey everyone i'm nathan and i'm dylan and as you know millennial politics is totally independent and volunteer run that means every podcast you listen to every article you read and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates causes and organizations and if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more we'll send you a free copy of how our government really works despite what they say it's an award-winning book about the intricacies of american government again if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics that's patreon.com slash m-i-l-l-e-n politics and join the movement all right now back to the show Transitioning topics a little bit, I want to talk about, I, I was looking at your website earlier and you have a great issues page, lays everything out in pretty clear detail. One of the pieces that caught my eye was um, kind of reallocating funds mm -hmm. from the mass incarceration system back into the community. Yes. What kind of budget does the DA work with and yeah. do you have the authority to actually reallocate some of that money? Absolutely. So the district attorney's office operates on a budget of over $60 million. Wow. Um, but beyond that, there's also, they're sitting on a lump sum of money. Um, it's over $100 million worth of federal asset forfeiture money. So this was money that was stolen from our communities in this big bank fraud. Uh, and Can you explain federal? Is it civil asset it's, forfeiture? It's federal civil asset forfeiture, which is yeah. different than civil asset forfeiture, um, uh, in the sense that like our Supreme Court has said, hey, civil asset forfeiture is, is unconstitutional. So going forward, we would not participate in collecting more um, mm -hmm. civil asset forfeiture funds. But this is money that the office already has. Got it. And uh, my proposal is to put it back into the communities through a form of participatory budgeted, budgeting, meaning that our community should be the ones who decide how the money gets spent because each community has different needs and can say, hey, we need more money invested into our schools, whether it's after school programs, maybe into our hospitals, so we have safer staffing and, and more resources, harm reduction services, mental health services, uh, money put into um, transitional 
emotional housing, whatever it might be. But consistently what you see, you know, in the research is that when you bring the community in and allow them to have a say in um, saying what it is they need, but also how we respond to different issues in the community, they get far better results than our police officers and our district attorneys do. The cure violence models is one of the best examples of this. Cure violence is something where you go into communities where they're struggling with gun violence and you ask the communities, hey, how would you like us to deal with gun violence? How can we help you get credible messengers in place to interrupt violence before it escalates? Hmm. And in places where there's a commitment to doing that, these programs reduce gun violence but by upwards of 40%. Uh, in ways that the police department hasn't been able to do because a lot of times you get police who come in and sort of up the ante and increase the risk of violence um, and, and getting results in ways that our district attorney's office haven't been able to do. We need stronger partnerships with community-based organizations because you know our district attorney's offices they are, are staffed in ways where it's not people from the community with direct relationships with the community uh, and these community-based organizations are starving for resources, know the communities better than anyone else and it's it's tied to them, right? I mean, these are their neighbors, these are their families, these are their friends. Hmm. And that kind of community-based model we're starting to see pop up in, in some other great places and I think this kind of wave of progressivism that we're witnessing um, really start to pick up is is really aligned with that. And you recently secured some pretty key endorsements. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, one, how you went about getting them, what it means to get them, and who has endorsed you? Um, so, you know, one of, a lot of the endorsements that I am most proud of are the, the community-based organizations that have rallied behind us that mm -hmm. are directly impacted. So I am always so proud to talk about the fact that folks like Make the Road um, sure. have endorsed because of the great work that they do with our, our immigrant communities, with yeah. our um, you know uh, transgender uh, and gender non-conforming communities, um, Vocal New York who works with our homeless populations, with formerly incarcerated folks, um, and you know, then we have uh, you know other progressive groups like uh, Our Revolution and NIPAN and a lot of uh, different groups in different areas. NIPAN is New York Progressive Action. New York Progressive, yes, yes. Oh. Um, obviously, DSA has endorsed as well, mm -hmm. and then some really incredible electeds like Jessica, Ra you know, Senator Jessica Ramos, Senator Salazar, Senator Gustavo Rivera, mm. um, obviously Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yeah. Uh, but all of these, uh, you know, groups like Rockaway Revolution, but. I think what all of these endorsements speak to um, is just that you know, these are folks that are very much so focused on community and their constituents and um, direct services to community and so for me it really kind of communicates the the sort of the grassroots organizing aspect sure. of this um, we have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers out knocking doors every day and that is because of these groups that have come together and sort of taken ownership of the the campaign and are building on it because they believe so much in it um, so I, I think it's really been helpful in that sense because it's it's allowed us to scale out on um, a pretty tight budget because we're you know obviously rejecting all corporate dollars I mean if there's a real commitment to make sure that we're keeping keeping that kind of money out of politics and typically at least in my experience, DA races don't usually garner such high profile and such attention. Um, so congratulations. No, yeah. I think it speaks to you as a candidate. Um, and, and you're certainly running in this anti-establishment kind of vein. Um, I read an article the other day, um, and I had never heard of this group prior to reading it, but I think it was the Queens County Bar Association mm -hmm. um, released a list of 
um, several of the candidates in this race that they deemed qualified or not qualified. Mm -hmm. And my take, my guess is that these are the establishment folks, um, and they said that you were not qualified. So yes. how, how do you respond to that? What is um, what do you what do you make of that uh, kind yeah. of? Uh, I, I think it speaks to us doing exactly what we set out to do. You know, like you said, it's very tied to establishment to be um, evaluated by a, a group of um, only, you know, white lawyers uh, coming together and saying, hey, you're going to be evaluated on your, your legal experience and um, your ability to lead and then uh, to, to find somebody like myself unqualified, but somebody like Borough President Katz, who's never stepped foot in criminal court qualified, mm. um, I think says a lot in and of itself. But, you know, I, I also think it speaks to what we represent in this race, in a race where we are talking about career politicians, career prosecutors, who, again, have fed into this system of mass incarceration, who have benefited from it, who have built it. Um, what I represent is a clean break from the status quo, a clean break from these um, from these power structures and um, what I represent I believe is the opportunity for like bold transformative change and I think that you know the status quo and the the establishment that's that's scary to them um, so you know if when you look at it that way it really wasn't all that unexpected do you think they're scared um, I don't know I don't know so tell me a bit more about your background. Are you were you born in Queens? Are you from the area? I, I was born in Queens, so I don't live too far from here. I live in Astoria now. Okay. But I grew up in South Richmond Hill, Queens. Okay. Um, and my parents grew up in the Woodside Housing Projects. Hmm. My dad's a retired elevator mechanic, and my mom took care of other um, people's kids growing up. And um, it's where I spent a lot of my time actually, because my my grandmother was a also a foster parent. Um, so she adopted two kids that are around my age that I, I grew up with um, and you know certainly it ties into the work that I, I do because my experiences in you know over policed over criminalized resource starved communities and then you know having the experience of my dad a lot of times I talk about the fact that really all that that separates me from my clients in a lot of ways is privilege and access to resource right mm. and the fact that my dad got a union job, which meant we had health care, that we had some you know, economic stability, um, that I got to get an education, and probably most importantly for me, that I got access to like therapy services as, as an adult to be able to have reparative experiences and, and kind of engage with the world in, in healthier dynamics than maybe what, was, what I saw growing up and what my parents saw growing up. Um, but you know, certainly that's the kind of the, the approach I bring to not just my public defense work, but bringing into the DA's office too and saying we need to to build um, stronger ties and relationships to our community so that when a case comes across us, uh, we are looking at the whole human being, right? And not just their individual trauma history, but their um, you know, the generational trauma, what the community is dealing with, because mm. you need to know these things to get to the root causers of, of behavior um, and get some outcomes that ensure that we're changing behavior and, and preventing people from cycling back in, which serves the person who has been accused of a crime or has committed some offense, but also serves survivors and victims because when you throw somebody in jail 97, 98% of the time, they're going to be released back into their communities yeah. and too often it's worse than, than when they went in. And that's something that we need to change too. So I'm, I'm curious, I wanna dig a little deeper into the idea of generational trauma. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about New York City students, um, you know, it's 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 tough growing up in the city, especially in the low-income areas. How can a DA 
kind of break the cycle of recidivism and going mm-hmm. into the system early, what are some things that, you, that come to mind for you yeah. of how to better impact those students? There are so many different ways to do it. And when I talk a, about generational trauma, um, you know, my, my, my family is a perfect example. Hmm. Um, I've, you know, told, so? I've told folks about my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was a man who was um, incredibly physically abusive. And to the point, and he was an alcoholic, and to the point where my grandmother left him and my mom dropped out of high school to help take care of the family. Mm. And um, after I was born, when I was younger, I also have an older brother, but she let my grandfather back into our lives because he was he was dying. Um, and the man that I got to know was just like, I, I, I adored him. He mm. was the coolest. I mean, he'd play the guitar for me. He'd like tell me these really like fantastic, he was super patient and loving. And you know, when I got older, Thinking about the fact that this this abusive husband and father and this really incredible grandfather, they were both so equally true. And he was somebody that could have been cycling in and out of our justice system. And our system was not one that accounted for the fact that he was also a Korean War combat veteran, earned a Mm. Purple Heart for our country, came home with PTSD, self-medicated with alcohol. And where were our systems in place to support him so that he could support his family? And so that's that's like his individual trauma, right? But when we talk about generational trauma, it can be tied to how does that affect me and and where I'm at in my life right. how did that affect your parents exactly they were being exactly right so you. what was modeled for my mother were really unhealthy relationships what did she find unhealthy relationships yeah. what was modeled for me unhealthy relationships and so the opportunity to again have access to privileges to have therapy and, and um, engage with the world differently makes a huge difference in breaking cycles and changing behavior and dynamics. Um, and those are the things that our DA should be looking at. And we should be doing that with, with, to your point with children as well and starting as early as possible. When the DA's job is not just punishing for the sake of punishing, but keeping people safe, then you know that you should be investing in human beings because mm. my grandfather is a perfect example of, of the point that this is not about good people and bad people and locking up the bad people. This is just about people. Yeah. And learn and and really everyone you, is capable of doing good and bad. Oh yeah. And and in learning that when you get to know people there are so many opportunities to, to support them rather mm. than tossing them away and get the results that you actually want. <laughs> um, right? Shocker. Uh, but it, for students, I mean we are especially our, our black and brown students in, in low income um, communities we are weaponizing zero tolerance policies against them. Um, They're getting suspended at disproportionately higher rates for just sort of silly infractions. Um, And then that culture of doing that and then having police officers in our schools um, is really creating an environment where then children are getting arrested when we know that instead of the money that we invest in our prison industrial complex, we could be taking that money and saying, let's add art programs, let's get more guidance counselors, let's add restorative justice programs so that kids are getting together and learning how to resolve conflicts together. Um, and that the studies show that this is the best way to reduce antisocial behavior um, in students in school. And it costs less and it makes all the sense in the world to do. So I think I want to end with one last thing. You mentioned supporting people. Um, for folks out there who are listening, there's about a month left in your campaign, or the election is when is it's June? June 25th. June 25th. So it's it's coming right up. Yes, it is. Um, how could people find you? How can they get involved? How can they learn more? Yes. So you can check out our website at www 
kabanforqueens.com and it's F-O-R queens.com. And then obviously that's my handle on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, on the website, there's a map to sign up for canvassing shifts, um, phone banking, text banking. And then also, we're, you know, we are grassroots. We're rejecting all corporate dollars. So if you are able to make a small dollar donation, it goes a long way in getting our literature out there. Um, but, you know, all, all of it helps. All awesome. of it helps. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Tiffany, thank, thank you, you so very, much. Very much. It was a real pleasure having you on. And uh, for our listeners, thanks for listening. And uh, stay tuned for our next episode.